Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 130 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. Every now and again, a film comes along that is tailor-made to elicit a deep emotional response. And A Star is Born certainly does that. So we are excited to talk through how it made us feel and what kind of experiences we had watching it. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me for this conversation are my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hey, everyone. And Feelin' Film contributor, Jeremy. Hello. We are thrilled to have you back on the show this week, my friend, and anxious to discuss this movie with you because we know how much you love it. But before we dive off of the deep end and into the shallow, we like to recap anything we watched in the previous week that might be worth recommending. Um, I've seen three films that are newly out in theaters, and I'm briefly going to give my thoughts on those. But Jeremy, I thought we would start with you as we like to do with our guests. So do you have anything to share? Well, I checked my letterbox and I've actually watched uh, 20 movies this week. So I'm just going to take about three or four minutes on each of them. I'm just kidding. Uh, 20 movies? I'm I'm not going to highlight. They're all rewatches. So I do oh, want to highlight uh, my favorite TV show came back on the air last week. That is The Good Place. It is the best show on television right now. Um, it's hard to talk about because every single episode is basically has like an end of the season sort of cliffhanger at the end. And so, but I just suffice it to say, if you're not watching The Good Place, then you're doing it wrong. Even if you don't watch TV, Aaron. Um, but uh, I've seen it, season one. Yeah, you have seen season one. Uh, I believe season two just dropped on Netflix, and you obviously want to watch that before going to season three. But it's funny, and it's smart, and it's uh, just a show that's about being good and learning to be good, which uh, I think that uh, around these parts, uh, people could stand to learn a little bit more of. That's awesome. That's a great recommendation. Patrick, have you seen any of it yet? I haven't. Um, I'm going to probably you put were- it on my watch list, though, now, based on that recommendation. You would really enjoy it. Okay. I mean, I, like I said, I've seen season one. The kids have actually blazed through. I don't know if it was season, I think it was season two that they just watched in the past week because, like you said, it dropped on Netflix. I binged it. It's it's so quick and short that you can watch. I think it's like only like four or five hours to get through a season. Yeah, both seasons are only 13. I think season two is maybe 14 episodes. So, Half hours. Yeah, so, so five to seven hours, you can you can knock out the whole thing. And it's it's fantastic. It's such good stuff. Very cool. Well, what about you, man? Have you seen anything, Patrick? Yeah, I actually checked out a show on Netflix called Magic for Humans. came out earlier this year, and it's essentially one of my favorite things that maybe a lot of people don't know. It's magic. It's centered around magic, obviously, Magic for Humans. But it's Friday Night guy. Magic. At What's the board that? Game. Friday Night Magic at the board game store. That's where you'll find Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> my alter ego would be there, right? <laughs> Are you a fire player or an earth player? You, you you lost me at board game store. <laughs> it uh, it stars this magician named Justin Willman, and it's real short. It's like six episodes. I'm hoping it gets renewed for a second season, but it's really street magic that he does, and he centers it around a particular theme or idea with each episode. So like one episode centers around the idea of guilt. Uh, one's centers on the idea of love. And so all of his magic tricks, all of his illusions are 
catered to that particular topic. And so he cleverly ties in that idea into the different tricks that he does, particularly with, um, with kids and adults, just different places. He does it literally on the street. He goes into classrooms. He actually challenges a robot to a magic face-off. And it's pretty, pretty hilarious. It's a very entertaining show. And it's one of those that you don't want to have on in the background because you're watching what he does. And it's pretty incredible the way that he has this up close magic and these illusions that he does. And you think, oh yeah, I'm going to see how he does it. Well, no, you don't even, and it blows your mind. Some of the things that he's able to do, he's like, he's an illusionist. He's a mentalist, all these different things kind of wrapped up into one. And he's also pretty funny. So I would very much recommend it. They're like half hour shows, six episodes. You can knock it out in a couple hours. Well, I mean, a couple hours, you know, add, do the math. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's been on the radar for myself and my kids. We enjoyed watching all of the different magic movies. We don't think there's enough of them, but anything that has magic in it, you know, whether it's The Prestige or The Illusionist or the Now You See Me films, both of those, we enjoy the heck out of those. So I think we'll have to check this one out at some point. Um, I guess one I don't have to watch by myself. That's good. That's good. Those are Those are hard, harder to fit in. Um, well, there's three new movies that are out in theaters this week that I wanted to briefly cover. One is called Private Life. This is a new Netflix release, and uh, I believe it's actually I don't even know if this is coming into theaters. I think it's probably it is. I think it's a brief, like a one or two week theater run concurrent with their uh, platform release. But Private Life is definitely streamable now on Netflix. And what this is is a drama about a couple who is in their 40s and have been having fertility problems. They've long wanted to have a baby. They've gone through trying to adopt, and that has not always fallen through. They just can't seem to have a baby. They've tried in vitro. In, uh, in vitro. Now, in, vit why, why in, vitro. in vitro uh, fertilization, and that has failed. And uh, it's just one thing after another for this couple. Nothing seems to be working out. And what we get is a really interesting look into what it's like for those who face this particular challenge in their lives who really want to have children. It's a niche topic, and I don't think that a lot of people are going to just pop this in to watch it, uh, knowing what it is and, and enjoy it. But I would say give it a shot specifically because it's a real empathy creator. At least for me, it was. It made me understand more so what people go through and how difficult that is emotionally. Some of the swings that they actually have to endure um, throughout. And, and it's just not only financial. I mean, it is financially ridiculous how much money they have to throw into just trying to get pregnant. But um, this is a very awkward look at it in that it's very real and honest. And it does not shy away from what it might feel like to have your legs up in stirrups with the doctor trying to make small talk as he's, you know, examining you and things like that. So anyway, check it out. Private Life. It's on Netflix. Um, it, it is a little bit long, but I think that it's compelling enough that it's worth recommending uh, specifically because there's just nothing else out there that's going to give you this kind of look into a, a set, certain group of people's lives. The second one is Venom. <laughs> Venom dropped. This week, and uh, many of you have probably seen it, considering that its opening weekend broke all of the October box office records with $80 million plus. Didn't actually see that coming. 
Uh, I didn't think that enough people were that interested in this character, but apparently they are. Tom Hardy is phenomenal. Jeremy, did you see Venom? Did you go? I did. I saw it uh, Friday night. Yeah, it was pretty good. Okay, so yeah, exactly. So Jeremy and I both enjoyed it. And what we found in the Feel and Film Facebook group over the, the past few days is that the majority of folks have enjoyed it. It's a three-star movie, okay? It is not a great movie. It is not, even by most standards, a good movie. There's plenty in it that you just roll your eyes and you just have to deal with. There's not a lot of plot. The villain is completely and utterly cliche, although the performance of the villain by Riz Ahmed is quite fantastic. I, um, the character himself is just whatever it's another billionaire scientist elon he's playing elon <laughs> musk <laughs> yeah. yes he really is playing elon musk um and then you know michelle williams is in it but she's kind of like phoning it in for a paycheck it feels like and part of that is the writing it's not it's like she's not acting well it's just she doesn't have anything to work with but go see this movie for the tom hardy performance he is fantastic as always and just watching him wrestle quite literally physically and mentally with this voice in his head is worth the price of admission by itself. I, I could watch another entire movie of just Tom Hardy and Venom having a conversation. It's, it's hilarious and it's so much fun. And it, even the action kind of fizzles out toward the end. It's got one of those like Wonder Woman type finales where it's just chaos and you don't know what's happening. And it's like two characters that are, I hate this is one of my worst or least liked tropes in comic book movies or in movies in general is when you have some sort of monster or superpowered being and they are fighting like the reverse of themselves. So like flash versus reverse flash or, you know, Superman versus wonder woman. Like they're the exact same character essentially. And so they do the same things. Well, this is what you have. You have two versions of symbiotes that are fighting each other. And it's kind of, they just, you get lost really easy. But that being said, it's still worth it. So uh, Venom is not the dumpster fire you may have heard. Believe the 89% user rating on Rotten Tomatoes and not the 30%. The last one is called Free Solo. It is a documentary that I highly, highly, highest recommendation if it is in your area for you to go out and see this in a theater. If you like nature documentaries, if you like climbing docks like Touching the Void or Meru or movies like Everest and Into the Wild and that kind of stories. This is for you. So it is cinematography is done by Jimmy Chin uh, and a partner. Jimmy Chin is a world famous National Geographic photographer. He actually is also a climber himself. He did the photography for the documentary Maru. And what he is doing is chronicling the free solo ascent of this rock face called El Capitan in Yellowstone National Park by probably the most famous climber in the world today. His name is Alex Honnold. And if you're not familiar with what free solo is, it's essentially climbing with no gear. So it's just using your hands and your feet to climb a rock face. This one is 3,200 feet high. Okay. It's insane. And the cool thing about this documentary is that it takes us into the mind of Alex and it really lets us start to understand what kind of person could be led to want to do this in the first place. And we realize that it's very quickly, we realize that it's not something that all of us possess, right? This certain level that he can go to. The photography in it eventually during the actual final ascent is phenomenal. It, it 
created so much anxiety in me. I was holding my breath. It's a very intimate story. Alex has a girlfriend that he meets uh, during this journey, and then he has to wrestle with his decision uh, related to this relationship. It's really, really phenomenal. And it's in this trifecta of documentaries that I think are out of this world uh, this year, the others being Won't You Be My Neighbor and Science Fair. So check it out, free solo, uh, if you have a chance. All right, guys, thank you for indulging me. That was fun getting to catch up on some stuff. And uh, hopefully, listeners, you enjoy that and we'll find something new to go out and watch. With that out of the way, though, A Star is Born. This is what we're all here for. And uh, we've been looking forward to this film for a long time, some of us more than others. Jeremy and I may or may not have been watching the trailer every single day for the last month. I have, yes. We have. Um, Spoiler alert, though, we are going to discuss this movie in full. And there are things that can be spoiled. So despite the fact that it is based off of the 1976 version of A Star is Born, mostly there are some changes that are pretty important to the plot. And so we are going to talk about those in depth. And if you haven't seen this film, not sure why, but go out and see it. Uh, it is an absolutely great one. And we highly, highly recommend that you check it out. And then, of course, come back and listen to us. Okay, well, Jeremy, I am so glad you got to join us. Seriously, I, I know how much you love this movie, or I know how much you were excited for this movie, I should say. I don't know yet how much you actually love this movie. So maybe we should find out, and you can kick it off with your one-word take. Yeah, um, my one word takeaway is right. R-I-G-H-T. I have seen, um, leading up to this movie, I was just kind of obsessed with the trailer, as Aaron said, and every little bit of uh, information and mostly of music that I could hear. And so I wanted to go back and I watched the other versions of this uh, story. And while some of them do a decent job of telling what I think is just a great story of you know, one person's rise to fame and the other person and someone else's fall. Um, I really feel like this is the first time that it, the whole thing has been done right. Um, the 1937 version I really loved. The 1970s version was maybe the worst movie I've ever seen. And, uh, so I was really wanting this to be, uh, to be done right. And I feel like Cooper really told it in a way that allows you to experience the exhilaration of making it in a way that I've never uh, experienced in a movie before, but also just the heartbreak of watching someone fall. So that's my one word takeaway is right. Fantastic, man. I am so, so, so glad that it succeeded for you because we've all been there. Patrick and I talk about it all the time, how important expectations are or how, how critical your experience is affected by them. Uh, you know, whether you want it to be or not, <laughs> you can't help but be excited for movies sometimes, but it also will definitely affect your viewing experience. And man, when you get to be both excited for it and it hits that perfect spot for you, it's very rare indeed. And it's worth celebrating. Patrick, what about you? Yeah, my one word takeaway was vulnerable. I really didn't have a dog in the fight in this one. I was looking forward to it but only to the extent that other people were talking about it, that it's got an Oscar caliber cast and an amazing soundtrack. And so any, any movie that's going to be in the Oscar conversation, I'm going to try to make an effort to go see. This is actually one that I got to see with my wife, which is a rare thing. Most of the time I'm doing these things on my own and we tried to make it a point to schedule our time so that we could do this movie together. And, um, 
we came out of it really feeling like, wow, that was heavy. That was a heavy movie. But the word that the word vulnerable, I think, really sums up how I experienced it because Ali and Jackson's relationship is what this movie really centers on, that and their actual music careers. And we get to see so much of that growth in both of them through this vulnerability, through how they are with each other, through the relationships that Jackson has with other people in his world, with who she has relationships with. And that growth as a musician and um, as a performer really enhances that vulnerability not only with within their careers, but also between him and his connection to her. That's great, man. Um, I'm really glad that you got to see it with Kay as well, uh, specifically because I know that that is super rare. <laughs> and uh, it, it doesn't get, it just doesn't happen a lot of times when you have a toddler. Jeremy, you have like 10 toddlers. So I don't know how many movies you get to see with your wife. Uh, she's not into them, so none. Wow. <laughs> what in the world? We've got to change that. What is there a genre at all that she enjoys? Um, well, whenever there's a faith-based movie, I, I make sure to save it aside to watch with her. Uh, she just, uh, she doesn't like the language or violence or anything like that. So she'd rather, uh, just wait for a good, or for a, a serviceable faith-based movie to come out. But yeah, we, Fair enough, we go see Pixar that. together and that's about it. Okay. Well, that's good. At least you've got Pixar. We'll always have Pixar, hopefully, if we're lucky. Well, my one word takeaway, guys, was powerful. Uh, and that is because I feel like it summed up pretty much every aspect of my experience with this film. The songs were as powerful as I could have imagined. Seeing them in the trailer, seeing them play out in the actual film within the context of the story was just pretty staggering to me. And even after the movie now, listening back to the soundtrack, several times just to kind of get back into the feel of the film. They are so, so moving and so affecting uh, in every way. The performances, can't say enough about how powerful the performance of cinematography was. Just the shooting of the scenes where they're on stage and they're actually together. Pretty amazing stuff and uh, made me feel the electricity in the in the area, in the in the concert. And so I think that that... Uh, fit this very well. The romance was powerful. Uh, the way that these two people fell for each other and uh, just seeing that relationship play out. The messages, uh, I don't know that I agree with every one of them, but I felt that they were pretty powerful in the way that they were uh, portrayed throughout this film, the different things that Cooper may be trying to convey and say uh, with his film. The tragedy was way more powerful than uh, I expected it to be. Went in thinking it was going to be one thing and I knew it was coming. And then even when I kind of called it uh, towards the end of the film, I think I, I realized where, which way we were heading. The, the fact that it actually took place the way that it did just knocked my socks off. And uh, it really elevated the final performance of this film uh, to be even more powerful than it would have been, I think. Uh, the first hour of this film for me, I would tell you guys, I think is as good as anything I've seen in years. Uh, it is darn near perfection. I don't know that there's a flaw with it at all. Um, so it is definitely powerful. That's, that's my word. The first thing I wanted to kind of dive into here is one of the big first musical moments uh, in the film is Jackson singing, Maybe It's Time. and 
for those of us that watched the trailer, we got a clip of this song. And I'll tell you, I did not expect him to be in a drag bar singing this to some drag queens. I don't know about you guys, but that was not the context that I was expecting. So good job, uh, filmmakers or trailer makers, for totally twisting that around. Uh, we were thinking that this was going to have something to do with the relationship between him and Allie, but no, no, it doesn't. Um, I wondered what you guys felt about this sequence and also about the lyrics to that song in context of now who he is singing to. And did this do anything to help build Jackson's character for you? Because this happened in that first hour. And Jeremy, we're just kind of going to normally start with you. So we ask a question. You're the guest. You get to go first. Hey, um, you know, I just thought that um, obviously – to me, it tied into a thing later in the film that I know we'll probably get to where he's talking to uh, Dave Chappelle's character about, um, you know, about about you find love when all of a sudden you realize you want to stay where you are rather than going to the next place. And I, I just feel like that song and him portraying it there while he's waiting for her, this big star, just waiting for this nobody. I Like he really realized in that moment um, she is somebody – that can do, you know, maybe move him past all of this uh, life that he's been living as far as the hard drinking and um, and just that uh, the the way that fame has cost him um, the things that fame and music have cost like his body with his hearing or whatever he sees in her or something to to move on from. So, yeah, it was really touching right away. I I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, that song is it's one that's been on repeat in my car since the soundtrack came out for sure. Yeah. Christian asked me if what my favorite song was. And I said it was that one. And part of the reason why is because I like acoustic guitar. I mean, I play acoustic guitar. So having something that's pulled back, that was in direct contrast with that opening number, which is also fantastic, really kind of accents the fact that he's approachable. Jackson is a character who I think whether he cares about fans or not, he is very much willing to just hang out with people and particularly with, with Allie. I think there's a great, there's a great moment. I don't know if it's before or after this, where she says something and she calls him by his full name. And he's like, what is up with when you become famous, people want to call you by your full name, just call me Jack. And so when you have that moment coupled with this, where lyrically, I think it foreshadows what we're going to experience it also talk, it also kind of reveals where he is in his career like he's in the twilight portion not the movie but he's in the he's in the 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 far end of where he is he's not in the prime i love the fact that his voice is very rough and rugged from i believe what what i would believe is the years of just doing this all the time you know the constant grind of being on the road and song songwriting I feel like this song is kind of an exhale emotionally of him saying, maybe it's time to hang it up. Maybe it's time to really just put the past in the past and live where I am right now. And I feel like he has hope with this new relationship with Allie. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to look at it. I, you know, I took it as very literal in that he was singing to drag queens and that Lady Gaga has been very outspoken in her career. and her messaging uh, of acceptance of um, whether it's, you know, homosexual lifestyles or just in general of people, no matter what um, she is a very big 
preacher, so to speak, of um, love everyone, show compassion for everyone, treat everyone with respect, those things. And um, I thought that this was kind of a way to to symbolize that. There's a there's a moment during this song where she walks in from the she's in the back of the room and we get to see her, and uh, she just is very prominently uh, displayed. She has a cross necklace on, and I just. I thought it was very intentional, um, the messaging that we had here. And uh, and I think that that's what he's trying to say, is he's saying you know, to them, maybe it's time to let the old ways die. It takes a lot to change a man, and it takes a lot to try, but maybe it's time to let the old ways die. I think he's intentionally talking to the drag queen, saying, you know, hey, public watching this, we need to reevaluate the way we think. We need to not be as dismissive of people that are different than us. And then the secondary portion was, I think you're right, Patrick. I think it definitely nails and, and has a lot to do with his own life in that moment. Um, and this is the beauty of songwriting. I think is when it can have multiple meetings when a song is not just telling you one story, right? It's, it can fit in different ways. And we talked about this during hearts be loud as well, how you can take a song a different way. Um, and pull something different out of it. And I, I really enjoyed that. And I thought it was a great setup to his character um, in general. And it just, it really shows you a Jackson that is not cocky. He's not like prideful in his fame. You know, here he is. These ladies just want to hang out. They just want to be nice. They just want to say hi. They're They're shocked to meet him. And it's it's a wonderful, very very sweet exchange. It's hilarious when he signs those those boobs, <laughs> and she says later, and she's like, "I'm wearing my Jackson boobs." Ha, I love it. Anyway, um, um, I also think like thematically that whole scene. I don't know if you noticed it, but as they're pulling up to the bar in the window of the limo, there is a billboard with like five nooses hanging on it in different colors. And I, you know, obviously having seen all the other ones, I knew that Jackson probably wasn't going to make it through this movie. And I thought, oh, is, is that foreshadowing? Which obviously it was. But then he walks into this bar and it's just like that moment is kind of, I mean, it's sadly, I mean, there's some highs to come, but sadly that moment of walking into the bar is the beginning of the end for Jackson. And it, I don't know, to me, it was just pretty powerful as he drove by that billboard and saw the new, you see the nooses there that nobody really mentions. I think I was just probably looking for it, but um, and then, you know, to play that song in there as well shows, um, I don't know, just tremendous, tremendous, like just thematic weight to that scene. That's great. That's a great catch. I actually did see it. And yet I did not put the two and two together, to be honest, until you just now mentioned that. So I appreciate that because you're right. That is some really good filmmaking, I think. Well, Jackson tells Allie early on when he first meets her that everybody is talented, but having something to say is a different bag. And this is a reoccurring message uh, that becomes very important uh, later again in the film. Um, both when Jack tells his brother later that he stole his voice because you didn't have anything to say. And then when Jack tells Allie, if you don't dig deep into your soul, you won't have legs. You've got to tell the truth. Jeremy, what did you think about this particular message? Is this one that you resonated with throughout the film? Because it felt pretty strong to me that we had this idea of talent versus message and truth telling that was really being explored by Cooper throughout. The film. Yeah. I really liked that uh, scene where he says that to her just because, you know, I've heard it, you know, heard it said that, you know, um, 
true art is, you know, when you, when you find true art, you're at the searching for the truth. And so that's what he's basically saying to her. And you can see throughout her career, you know, she starts that way. That's how she gets famous is by putting herself out there and putting her, her words out there. They're so powerful. Um, you know, and when he gets disgusted with her, it's because she kind of stops saying the things that she, uh, that she has inside of her to say, and instead is, uh, you know, just trying to be a pop singer or whatever. And just singing that song she sings on SNL is maybe the worst song I've heard in just a long time. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, that I, I thought it was just a pretty powerful statement and a, definitely a, a true statement. I think all as people, we all have, there's something inside of us, it's something, you know, and you can choose to skate by with, uh, what you're good at and just, uh, take it a little, you know, take it far enough to be comfortable, or you can take it to the extreme and say something with your life and the gifts that you have. So, um, I thought, yeah, I love that. Yeah. I think what separates talent from truth telling in this case is a sense of purpose. And what we see from Jackson early on is that when you lose that ability to be purposeful in your songwriting, which, I mean, he puts a lot of heavy, heavy emphasis on, calls her a songwriter, even though she doesn't believe it. We, we get the sense that everything that he writes has value. It has a purpose that it's meant to hit at least one person in a way that matters to them. And it's not just a hook. It's not just a catchy phrase. It's about how the words and the music really come together to impact someone. And that word impact, I think, is significant because when you contrast his his music, that rockabilly stuff, and even his more toned down stuff with particularly that SNL performance, there is a deliberate contrast in saying, ah, this is shallow versus deep, or this is poppy versus meaningful. It's what I feel like separates modern artists from their singer-songwriter counterparts. It's why I like the singer-songwriters like Sheryl Crow and those guys that probably live in the acoustic piano world, not just because of the instrumentation, but because of the fact that they're storytellers. I feel like the pop music side, and not dissing Lady Gaga or pop music in general, but the pop music side is less about storytelling and more about hooks and rhythms and beats. And Jackson sees value and purpose in being able to tell stories because I think as a musician, as someone who's a singer-songwriter, he knows how powerful stories are. I mean, Bradley Cooper is being very meta with his character and saying, I'm telling this story because it's powerful, not because I'm a talented actor or director or producer, but because this is a story worth telling. I mean, that's even more emphasized the fact that this is a remake. This isn't an original story. This is a remake of several iterations of this. And I think that speaks equally to Bradley Cooper as a talented director, writer, actor, as it does to Jackson as a character. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with your singer-songwriter comment. That was something that stuck out to me a lot, was the idea of a song that tells you a story and that comes from the heart of the person singing it. It's just, it's got so much more meaning and so much more power when it's personal, rather than the same exact story could be written, but if it's not you, okay, so so Taylor Swift, for example, writing her first few albums by herself, it's her love notes, it's her lyrics, it's her high school experiences that she's writing her songs about. And that is much more moving and much more affecting than somebody else who's writing her songs for her, even if they have similar stories and lyrics to them, but it's not really her experiences anymore. 
Um, so you, there is a huge difference in that. And I think that this line in particular tied into the Maybe It's Time song so well because it lines up this whole film to say, you know, Ali, you have the chops to sing and what is going to set you apart and what is going to make people really fall in love with you is the fact that you have a kind heart. You have a, a reason to say the things that you want to say. You're going to be able to help people express themselves through the lyrics that you come up with um, in your messaging. And then conversely, I just love that, that balancing where he says it to Bobby, his brother, and he tells him that line. He says, you didn't have anything to say. Like, that's why I became the singer is because you were just, you were a great musician. But if you weren't interested in putting your thoughts and your opinions out in the world, then what's the point when I do, I want to do that. I want to express myself. So I love that. I, it was probably my favorite theme <laughs> of the movie, to be honest. I just really enjoyed watching it play out kind of over the course of the film and the events that took place. Well, leading up to um, the incredible performance of, of Shallow, Jackson has had his driver, who is, in my opinion, perfectly played, by the way. Um, the casting there is spot on. It's, it, I think it has to be intentionally like a kind of dig or joke or like Iron Man kind of funny, in my opinion, to use him. But uh, I, I thought it was great to have him in the film. And then he follows Allie around. And then there's there's a beautiful moment once all of this has come full circle and he's, he's kind of pressured her and pushed her to come to the concert. She eventually caves, but when she comes to the stage, he tries to get her out there. He talks about how he's got this arrangement for them and he's figured it all out. And he says, all you got to do is trust me. But here's the question I have guys. And I know this is a very big scene, so I don't want to talk too much about it because it might be a connecting point. Who knows? As romantic as this is, on some level, with Jackson being so focused on Allie's success, and seemingly he is, this is not about him. As positive as the outcome is, I wondered if you guys had any hindrance around this scene regarding his actions, maybe with regards to pushing someone to do something that they initially tell you they don't want to do. Did, that, did either of you pick up on that, or was it just really, really sweet to you both? Jeremy? Um, I think it was really sweet to me, and I just thought that it showed that he was more interested necessarily. I mean, like, he could have probably just gotten her phone number and called her the next time he was in town, and they could have had a romance. But I, it showed me that he was more interested in her being heard than he was in a fling or whatever. And so, you know, I, I, if I was in that situation, I don't know that I would love a driver following me around or whatever, but... You know, I think that uh, I know as a father, sometimes you just, there's stuff that your kids are afraid of that, you know, would be good for them. And sometimes they need a push. And I think he saw that in her. And so to me, um, I thought that that was, you know, if he would have used that as, you know, to get her to bed or to do whatever, I thought that would have been pretty uh, sleazy and gross. But he really seemed like his intention was for people to hear what he heard uh, at the drag bar. And I thought it was noble and sweet. There is a sacrificial element that I think exists in here and or at the very least a very selfless act because there's it's 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 a beautiful image because Jackson yes he's seasoned he's got the fans out there but he's at a point in his career where 
the moment that he hears her sing in that bar, it's not like he says, I've got a way to revitalize my career. In that moment, I think he makes a choice. He says, she needs to be heard. And that pressure, like you mentioned, Jeremy, I think was necessary because she wasn't going to. Like she was fine with singing in a drag bar and letting that be her career, whatever that was. She was fine with hearing people tell her, I say fine. She was used to people telling her, you got a great voice, but nobody wants to see you sing. And I think that moment when he pulls her on stage and he shows her to the world, in this case, this massive concert audience, he's validating the fact that she doesn't need to just be heard. She needs to be seen as well. I love, love, love the fact that he says, all you got to do is trust me. Because that's what she's got to do in that moment. She is trusting him completely. And I don't know that he has anything to lose except her, but she's now the most important thing to him in that moment. Yeah, that's good stuff, guys. I, I think I mostly still fall with you there. I mean, it's a, it's a scene that gives you goosebumps, and that's all there is to it. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's very, very important and powerful scene. Um, I just think there is an element here of, You've got to be careful. There's a line and you've got to watch yourself here because at some point he, he is really pushing her pretty hard and he's, he's not taking no for an answer. Um, but I, you're right, Jeremy. I think maybe it does pay off here because it's all about her in the end. He is pushing for her success. I just, I think probably what it is, Patrick, honestly, is because we just talked about hearts be loud last week and I couldn't help but compare this to, um, the father, you know, taking the daughter's music and putting it on Spotify. It's the same, same concept. Like it's in a way now, ultimately Allie makes the choice. That's probably the difference here is she steps on stage. Um, and I'm going to let you go here in just a second. I see you wanting to rebut me, but, um, yeah, ultimately she agrees. And, and, but getting her to that point, I definitely, I definitely think there's a little bit of pushiness going on. Uh, it's not derailing, but it is there. What were you going to say? I was going to say the difference here, though, is with Frank and his daughter, his daughter was on the path to do something else. She wasn't trying to become a musician. That was part of their world. His pressuring her was equally about his success and his desire to have this musical career, at least in part. And if you guys want to hear the rest of the story, you can go hear our podcast episode on it. But what I'm saying is that I think Jackson really wanted nothing more than just to get her on stage so that she could experience what he felt like she deserved to experience. It really was never about him. Now, granted, it comes across in a way that's like, hey, you don't even know this girl. You've met her once. You spent how many hours with her? And now you're wanting to you know, make her do this stuff. But I think the movie gives us that freedom and, and forgives them because of the fact that from the very beginning, from that moment, he wasn't attracted to her sexually, at least not primarily. He was in awe of her performance. And that was the thing that connected him to her. Yeah, I think I'll buy that. I'll just say that. I'll buy that. <laughs> you sold me. Well, the film's first act that I mentioned, you know, is definitely a powerhouse. And I'm assuming that you guys felt the same way. But once Allie becomes a star in the making it seems like the tone changes quite a bit as we begin to shift into her 
transition into more of a pop music career. How did this affect you guys' viewing experience? Did you feel like it was a natural progression for her character? Or do do you think that there's any chance that it maybe was forced a bit to fit into who the actress is and what her genre of song outside of this film is? Um, you know, that being Lady Gaga and generally being a pop music artist. So what did you think about the direction the film took for her career, Jeremy? Um, I guess I have two thoughts about it. The first one is it it just kind of feels like the real, like reality, what would actually happen as you get someone like that and you are going to transform them into the bubblegum garbage that you can hear um, on every station around the world. I say this as a guy who is, I mean... Sorry, I'm hopelessly in love with like Kelly Clarkson and Taylor Swift's music. So I'm not like saying it. I'm making fun of people who like it because I'm one of you, but it's, it's not unique. It's, it sounds the same a lot. And, and so I think it feels real, like the right thing to do. And I just, as a film, like, um, in all of the other iterations of the story, there is a scene where the uh, main character, uh, the main male character has been sidelined and can't get gigs anymore. And nobody wants to hire and nobody wants to hire him to act. Nobody wants to hire him to make more music. And he is driven to drinking again by like either a phone call or a delivery boy coming to the house and being like, Oh, who are you? I'm looking for, you know, your significant other. And so in my to me, as someone who's watched all of these uh, iterations of the story, I thought this was just the best way to sort of, uh, as a storytelling device, to drive him to be disappointed to start the drinking again like he did at Saturday Night Live. Is um, It felt the most real as far as his response to what she's becoming, too. So, um, you know, did I like what she became? No, but I like what it did for the story. And I think it it made the payoff of this version a lot better than any other versions did. There's a there's a great contrast in being used in the musical stylings of Jackson and Allie in seeing the rockabilly singer-songwriter versus the pop star. And I was listening to the soundtrack today and there were several songs and I was like, "Oh, I don't remember that being in the in the in the mu- in the movie." And most of them were poppy. Most of them were very Lady Gaga-esque. But I think that that contrast I agree with you, Jeremy. I think it definitely shows the reality of exploiting talent as opposed to encouraging talent. And it created a great tension for the back half of the movie to kind of give us more information about Jackson and emphasizing the fact that Allie could potentially lose who she is as a singer songwriter. She could potentially lose her voice and it get wrapped up in the noise that is pop music. And when I look at that, I think it's a great storytelling device, but I agree with you. It kind of left a bad taste in my mouth because of what I didn't want her to become. There are two movies in particular that this movie reminded me of one being, um, one being the Johnny cash story and seeing Johnny and June walk the line, um, cash. Yeah. Walk the line. And the other being Country Strong that has some similar story beats to it. But the difference between those is that we don't see a career take such a drastic turn. And I thought Bradley Cooper as a director, the way in which this progressed, I think he did a fantastic job in making that kind of choice. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I didn't like it. And I think that's an an unnecessary result 
Um, and there's some just it just not gonna necessarily affect everybody the same way. It was unfortunate for me because I thought that that first hour was so good and so perfect that between the film sort of slowing down considerably uh, in this middle part, and this is a problem that I think all of the versions, at least that I've seen, have. Some are much more egregious than this one. This is still the best by far, but it does kind of slow down in this time period. And I didn't like any of the pop songs. So I think it would have been different if I would have personally had some Taylor Swifty type music that I was like, man, I'm I'm into this. I'm digging this. You know, this is my my Taylor or my Avril or my, you know, um, Carly Rae Jepsen type stuff. But it wasn't for me. And so it it made it feel more like a slog after getting the phenomenal maybe it's time and shallow and. Um, I'll always remember us this way, you know, like those songs came before and I was like, man, I am into this music style. This is phenomenal. Like I want to hear Lady Gaga do this. And then we transition and we leave, we get all these other poppy stuff leading up to that atrocious SNL. And it's, it's weird because I agree with you. Uh, I agree with you both. You know, I think, I think it's fantastic filmmaking in that it makes sense (laughs) and it's supposed to evoke those feelings. But at the same time, it sort of lessens my enjoyment of watching it take place. It's a really weird experience that I had, but I think overall, I agree. I don't believe it was done because of who Gaga is uh, in the real world. I think this was the natural progression of this story, and this is very, very realistic uh, possibility of what happens to people. Uh, you know, in a sense, Taylor Swift. We can use her as an example. This is the kind of thing that Hollywood, not Hollywood. Um, I guess Nashville, the music scene, wherever they are, uh, does to you. You know, when you come in, she takes you from a country star and realizes they can market you uh, as a pop star, and then they start to change you. Right. And the success of that is adapting to your surroundings. And I think that two examples come to mind. Madonna is one of those examples that of someone who adapted to the music that was surrounding her. She didn't just become an 80s pop star. She evolved with it. And whether or not you like her music, the fact is she was successful over multiple decades. Um, Aerosmith is another great example of that in that they didn't necessarily change their styles, but maybe they kept themselves being relevant because of, I don't know, how they wrote their music. But Taylor Swift is a really interesting example because she is both successful in the country scene as well as in the pop scene. But I think a lot of her success comes from the fact that she writes a lot of her own stuff. The fact that she is still telling stories. And even in the form of Top 40, the songs that stick around, the songs that aren't just catchy one-liners or hooks, are the ones that have a great story behind them. Because you sing along with those, because you connect with those. And I think Taylor Swift is a great example of someone who could probably, within reason, step across more than a couple of different genres because of her ability to tell stories. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think Lady Gaga can do that. I think take her out of this movie and she could do that, you know, and she shows us that vocally speaking, she could do pretty much anything she wants. (laughs) That is my takeaway from this performance by her. I think, I think she could sing anything and I'd almost love to see her just like start putting out albums. Like here's the Lady Gaga Skrillex mix. Here's the Lady Gaga you know, um, you know, musical opera. Here's the, you know, I didn't know. I just think she could do it all. Um, well, Jack, w- moving on down the road here in the story, Jeremy, you mentioned earlier a little bit about how Jack goes to see his friend Noodles. 
Oh, Noodles. His name's Noodles, and he lives in Memphis. I feel like that's perfect, by the way. I don't know if you guys... Well, Patrick, I know you have uh, gone to Memphis before. It's very close to yeah. us when we were in Arkansas. And um, it, Noodles just feels like the name that uh, a musician would have <laughs> in Memphis. Yeah. Um, but Dave Chappelle plays him, and I was kind of hoping for a bigger role, honestly. I, it was I was a little sad at how small this was because I enjoyed it so much. But he tells Jack that maybe Allie is a way out of his addiction to alcohol and his struggle that we don't even know yet how deep it is. We haven't come to find out the the issues he's coming at from childhood, how how strong those are. And he says that love is when you realize you don't even give a shit about where you're going because you like where you're at. So my question is, Jeremy, do you agree or disagree with that advice? I don't disagree. I don't think. Um, you know, earlier in the movie, uh, the first time that Allie visits Jackson's home, he says he says something along the lines of this is home for the first time because it never felt like home before until you were here. And so in that sense, I feel like he already agrees with that, you know, that uh, that home is wherever she is. And in that sense that you don't. You don't care where you are. You don't care because, uh, where, or you don't care where you're going because where you are is exactly where you want to be. And so I don't, I don't disagree. Um, I don't think love, I don't totally agree either because love doesn't make you leave ambition at the door and, uh, you know, desire to further your career, desire to, you know, to go and to change and to be a better person. So, um, I would say I'm I'm middling I'm middling on that uh, on that statement there. It, it sounds nice, but if you break it down a little bit too much, I might not like it as much anymore. Patrick, yeah, I think that if Noodles were talking with Allie and saying that, we'd get a completely different kind of emotional response to that because he's talking to someone whose career is coming to an end, and so it makes sense that hey. Where I'm landing, if it's with Allie, it makes sense. I like where I'm at. I'm okay with not pursuing anything else. But if he were saying that to a rising star, someone who had her future in front of her like that, then it sounds like a cheap cop-out, like you're settling. You're not giving yourself the chance to be successful. You're not giving your, yourself the chance to really excel at what you're good at or at what you have to offer the world. And so I think it's perfect for Jack to hear but I don't think it's good universal advice. Yeah, I agree totally with both of you. I mean, it is, Jeremy, you said it really well. It's a great tagline. It's a great Hallmark card line. <laughs> but when you start to actually think about it and break it down and apply it to situations um, one at a time, you realize, ah, maybe not quite that way. I think my issue with this is it leads Jack to proposing to Allie like that line sort of escalates where he's at in life um noodles saying that she can save him and so this is coming on the heels of a major traumatic event they've had a big fight they've been separated to some extent she's not happy with him at all and now he decides I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna propose to you and boom we're married to me this came off as probably the worst one of the worst things Jack does in the entire movie because it's it's very selfish and it feels like he's doing it for him now and he's not doing it for Allie at all he's trying to essentially use her to save himself 
And I just don't see this as a good foundation for a marriage. And I think it's it's part of the tragedy of this story is that this is this is really where they kind of go off the rails kind of full steam for me because if you don't start that marriage off with that good solid reasoning behind it and, and foundation, then it's bound to crumble and we we see the effects of that. Did you guys kind of feel the same way? Yeah, absolutely. It feels kind of like you said, the first like thing that he does in their relationship for him. Up to this point he's been really trying to push her, but that it did lead to a definitely a selfish decision on her part that on his part that wasn't uh you know the first thing that he wasn't really looking out for her best interests. Yeah, their relationship is a mess and it can be a beautiful mess at times, but it's just I mean it's just terrible in terms of how it starts. This to me was a Jerry Maguire moment. A chance for him to say, hey, I need to keep her around and this is the way to do it. And I almost laughed a little bit when Noodle says, well, let's anoint this. Let's make it official. I'm like, no, 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 don't make it official. Don't don't celebrate this because this is not good. And I again, for the sake of the story, it's great because it really gets into the back half of the second act where we oh, that great bathtub sequence where. He accuses her of calling him uh, her boyfriend. And she's like, well, yeah, because you're definitely not my husband. I mean, it's just awful. And it it's meant to be messy. It's meant to be a mess because I think the any kind of resolution that would take place isn't paid off as well if you don't have that awkward proposal that feels sweet, but you really know it's a train wreck ready to happen. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I'm just glad that I wasn't alone in that. Um, and I wasn't supposed to like really celebrate the sweetness of that moment because it just wasn't happening. I, I was, I was dreading it more because I was thinking about, gosh, this is bound to cause us problems. Like we're not going to get the happy ending at the end of this that I was hoping we would surprise me with. Um, another one of the film's great tragedies, in my opinion, is that no one really seems to help Jack. And I specifically would say that everyone acknowledges his alcoholism and his destructive nature, but that they kind of find it annoying at best and enable it at worst. And I wondered if you guys, at any point, did you feel that Jack was savable or did you feel that it was an inevitability that he was on this path due to his history and his history being that his dad was essentially too drunk to even notice that he tried to kill himself at 12 years old. Um, so that's a pretty big milestone in your life. Jeremy, when I, when you answer this, I want you to try and think about if you can, like not in the storytelling aspect of you've seen four previous versions of this film. And so you know what's going to happen, but Based on the storytelling Bradley Cooper was giving us, did you feel like Jack as a character had any chance? You know, I don't, just because by the time, you know, other than Allie, uh, Jack doesn't have any friends. He doesn't have a support system. Uh, by the time we meet him, his uh, relationship with uh, Sam Elliott, Bobby, his brother, is already too far gone to where Bobby can't get through to him. Um, and so does... I don't know. I don't know if I would say they're enabling at all, but I, it feels like he doesn't have anybody. Um, 
he doesn't have anybody to sort of be that person to whip him into shape. Um, even Allie, by the time she's met him, he's already, you know, an alcoholic. So, uh, he, she's just, that's who he is to her. He doesn't have those, um, that support system, like his band or anybody like that, that would just come alongside him and just encourage him to be moving forward with getting clean and sober. So, um, yeah, that, that was definitely a disappointment to me that he didn't have any sort of support system to, uh, you know, just sort of call him on the carpet for his destructive behavior. Having never seen the previous iterations of this, I am, and I think all of us are people that like to see hope in, in, in movies. Um, I know that there are, I've had a number of conversations with people about certain movies or certain TV shows that I don't watch, not because they're inherently bad, but because there's no hope in them. They're very just tragic, 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 tragic with no sense of levity, no sense of, Oh my gosh, I need some kind of redemption here. Pursuit of happiness kind of comes to mind. And I look at, I look at a movie like this and I see Ali as a saving grace, albeit kind of a, kind of a weird saving grace. I felt some hope when he was in rehab and having that conversation with him and her play out where she says to him reluctantly about coming home. And he's like, wait, do you, do you not want me to come home? It's in that moment that I really felt like, Oh my gosh, he's putting all of his hope in her and she's going to let him down. I think something's going to happen. And it was that, that moment that I realized this isn't going to end well, and it's not going to be her fault. It's not going to be anybody's fault really, but his, because he has to own his illness. And I think that when I see that, I, I think that's the first part of the movie that I really felt sad is the fact that I knew something wasn't going to turn out right. I didn't think it was going to be anything like death, but I thought their relationship isn't going to last, but how it ended, I, I, I didn't expect that. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm so glad that you have that perspective too, because Jeremy and I both have seen, I guess we've kind of had a, had a hierarchy here where Jeremy has seen all of the five versions. Um, for those that don't know, there is a version of this that's not called A Star is Born. Um, it goes back even further, and it's based on the original story for this. Um, but I've seen like three of the five, and then you've seen none. So we kind of all had a little bit of a different background. Um, and I love hearing your perspective because you didn't have that in your head. And it's impossible for Jeremy and I to know, to, to imagine in the, in reality what we would have thought if we didn't have that knowledge. For me, Patrick, your, your comment right there really hit it. You know, I've lived this relationship where I put all my eggs in one basket as far as I made a person my everything. And that person told me one time, it was very, very memorable, and it has stuck with me for over a decade, and has informed every relationship that I've had ever since. I finally had someone stand up and tell me, and they said, I can't be your everything. Like, you have to have other things. And if we're going to be in a marriage, if we're going to be in a relationship that is two people coming together, that has to be exactly that. It has to be two people that share something and come to one another in the middle but they if you if you rely on your spouse to be everything for you then you're going to be disappointed and you're ultimately going that's going to result in you you know having some sort of guilt uh, uh, pushed onto them because 
they can't meet your needs <laughs> for everything that you need. And it was just very striking to me. And, and I thought the same exact thing when I was watching this, like that you pulled out of that, is that's where their relationship had ended up because that's all Jackson had outside of his dog. Um, by the way, that's Bradley Cooper's actual dog. For those of you who don't know that, I just thought that was really awesome that he cast his own dog. And I also found it pretty funny because I read that PETA sent him like a letter thanking him for casting his own dog in the film. Yet that dog was eating a big steak, which means that it was a dead cow. So PETA, you didn't do your homework. Um, anyway, I, I think that you're, you're right, Patrick. And it, this actually leads into a thought I had about what kind of happens next as we're moving here toward the end of his story with Rez. Now, Rez is a character, the music producer that takes Allie under his wings, who in the 76 version of this film, which is the one that this holds the closest to, is a radio DJ. And he has a bunch of beef with Jackson's character, and, uh, and they get into a fight, and they just they have a lot of differences in style and what they think of each other. So I really compared those two characters a lot. Rez was interesting to me because while he was doing things that I didn't necessarily agree with, when it came to this last moment at the end and he walks into Jack and he gives him this guilt trip, He's, it's after Jack's already screwed everything up at the award ceremony and ruined her night, just horribly, horribly ruined her night, which she handles incredibly graciously, might I add. I, I was shocked that she handled it so well and it, even so far as she's like with him in the sh in the bathtub and in the shower as he's puking at her own award ceremony, I, I think 90% of spouses at that point would have probably checked out and been like, you know what, you're on your own. I'm going to the after party and I'll see you at home, <laughs> maybe, if I decide to come back. So Allie is, is phenomenally patient at this point still. But Rez comes to see Jack and what he says is incredibly blunt and maybe rude. But I think that despite how awful what he tells Jack is, and this is when he is telling, I'm sorry, he's telling Jack that he's ruining Allie's life, he's ruining her career, and the best thing for her is for him not to be involved anymore. He needs to, to walk away from her. My question to you is, it, do you think that in any level that Rez is validated in what he is telling Jack in this moment? So did you find it as nothing but a negative, awful, oh, you're an evil person, Rez? Like you are causing Jack to have to kill himself. Or did you see some truth and honesty in what Rez was saying? I, you know, it's honest. I don't know. Uh, I don't know that he's the guy that ought to be telling him that. But, you know, like we mentioned before, Jack doesn't really have any friends that can tell him that sort of thing. And Allie's not going to tell him. So um, it was obviously honest. Uh, but he was also kind of an a-hole in the way he said it. It could have been, been said in a gentler way that... Um, you know, hopefully doesn't drive somebody to do what Jackson ultimately did. But, um, you know, I think I, I wanted to hate him and I wanted to be angry and just, uh, you know, make him out to be the villain of the story. But in reality, he was, he was, he was looking out for her career in the way that Jackson did when they first met. And, um, so I don't think you can really, uh, you can't blame him for what he said. Yeah, I would agree with the fact that I can't blame him at 
and, and the reason why is because, at least in part, we get the privilege of seeing Allie and Jack's relationship, and we are anchored in that relationship. So all of our emotional connection to that, all of our thoughts and all of our reactions from other people can be from that subjective vantage point. If I'm trying to be objective, though, I'm thinking, you know that he has just gotten out of rehab. And if anybody who's anybody would know that somebody's probably going to be somewhat vulnerable after being in, in rehab for, for that period of time. And so there's a better way to handle that. But I think what Cooper does in his direction is he allows us to have that piling on feeling of what you mentioned, Jeremy, that Jack really only has Allie. And that emphasis just gets amplified. That emphasis just gets amplified in that moment where we realize I didn't ever feel like Rez, it was Rez's fault or I wanted to blame him for what was going to happen next. It just amplified the fact that that Jack was vulnerable, that Jack was very sensitive. He was very fragile at that moment and that completely broke him. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I think I didn't have a problem with it at all. I mean, I felt it. I, I go back to that word tragic, shoot tragic. It should have been my one more takeaway maybe. But, um, you know, it felt like I was watching the train wreck happen when you know it's you know it's taking place. Um and there's a sequence of these events, and it's probably one of the things that I thought was so brilliant about the film in general and Cooper's choices that he made in in taking the steps through this film with Jackson is you go through these moments where you just cringe and you're like, no, we just took a step toward the inevitable. We just took another step toward the inevitable. And this felt like another one of those. And Patrick, I love how you broke that down um, by saying, you know, he's... He's just amplifying the fact that Jack doesn't have anybody and to speak this truth into his life. Whereas maybe that was Bobby. You know, Bobby's probably the closest, but he pushes him away. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's unfortunate. Um, but I, I definitely did not feel the hatred for Rez throughout the film that I felt for another vil other villainous character in, in the 76 version. And I thought that was pretty cool that I could understand Rez's motivations in the way that he was taking Allie's career, because in a sense, he is also looking out for Allie. Now, it's in a different way. It's not necessarily taking into account what Allie wants, but in light of what maybe she wants the end result, he's getting her there. You know what I mean? Like he's profiting off of her, whereas Jack isn't, and that's the difference. But in in some ways, he's just less... He's, he's a little more gray <laughs> than he is a totally, totally bad person. Well, this leads us up toward the end. And one shot in this film that killed me, guys, and I, I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, I cried multiple times in this movie, but one where the water came on was right when Allie is leaving the house and Jack stops her and he says, I just want to take another look for the second time. And I knew. And I knew. I mean... I, I knew he was going to die one way or the other, and I didn't know how, but I had a pretty good idea, of course. But that moment slayed me. Just coming back to that line from the very beginning of how they had that spark of their relationship to it being the framing device of the beginning and end, it, it was such an incredible decision, and it, and it was so powerful. But this is where the version 
diverges distinctly. And Patrick, I'm sorry I'm going to spoil this for you. But in the 76 version, he's shaking your head saying, don't spoil it. I think he's saying I'm fine with that. he Go doesn't ahead. care because he's not going to watch that piece of crap movie. <laughs> it's terrible. Listeners, it's bad. Don't watch it. Um, in the 76 version that is way worse than this version, uh, what happens is he ends up getting back on, not in his motorcycle. Is he in his motorcycle, Jeremy? Or is he in his car? Uh, I think he's, I think in he's car. getting in his truck, his truck, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think the difference was that he gets in his truck and he drives off drunk and he gets in a crash and dies. So this film, I think, does a really brilliant job of playing up his motorcycle riding in a way that makes you think, if you've seen the previous film, that possibly he's going to do the same thing on his motorcycle this time around. And this is where Cooper says, nope, I'm going to give Jackson even more of an issue here to deal with. And we see him commit suicide. How did you feel about this scene? And how did you feel about this choice as a means of resolution for Jack's character based on what you knew of him through the movie, Jeremy? I think it felt more real with the character that, uh, Cooper, you know, created for this story. Um, there's, uh, I don't know. There's just, uh, to me to have all that build up to have knowing that he was going to die, if he would have died on accident, I don't know. It just, it would feel a little bit cheaper. Not that I I'm rooting for the guy to commit suicide or anything, but it was, uh, I, I just feel like it was the right way to go. It's the way that the other, versions of the story go um and just in different ways sorry i didn't sorry spoilers there too but uh that's just kind of in the other versions i believe they the dude walks into the ocean and drowns himself so um i thought it was a perfect uh i I, you know a perfect way if the story is going to end tragically like uh you know i was pretty sure it was going to i think that was definitely the way to go rather than the rather than the car accident uh just it just felt better I, in the most, (laughs) I loved it. And that sounds really despicable, but I think it was perfectly done for what the story was trying to tell. First of all, I love the fact that we never see his face. The fact that everything is basically from the waist down, neck down. We see him acting with his hands we see the toolbox. We know what's happening. You know, the belt's in his hand. We know he's going to hang himself or attempt to hang himself. And we see the toolbox and we're like, what's he going to do? He's going to stand on the toolbox, right? That's, that's what's going to happen. And then we see him put his hat on the toolbox. And that's the last shot we see before. This is what I think the movie, I can't figure out if I like this, but the movie cuts a lot. There's a lot of hard cuts between scenes, between moments. And this is one of those hard cuts. Cuts back to the concert, and then it cuts back to him with, is it Charlie? Is that his dog's name? Yeah, I can't remember. Sitting with the closed garage door, and in the background, we see this hanging body. And that is probably one of the most just tragic moments that I've seen in a movie in the last probably five or ten years. Because like a lot of the scenes, it's just quiet. There's There's no score in this movie at all. It's all sound, soundtrack. It's all lyrically driven stuff. And I think that's incredibly purposeful because you have time to let those moments breathe. And 
when you when you have something like that and you want to do it justice, you want to bring an end to a character and you want to accent the fact that as much as you want him, you hope that he has a life that is better, you know that it can't. He was on the road from the very beginning to a point of tragedy. And to me, this was a great exclamation point for that. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, I I loved it too, Patrick. I hate to say it, but... You know, I struggled with whether or not this would be my connecting point. And I was like, that is really just too disturbing to go that far. But if there was a scene that I would point to, if Bradley Cooper gets a best director nomination in the Oscars for this film as a first time director and people go, what? You're crazy. Why would, you know, I, I would point to this scene. Like, it is that good. I do not at all um, argue with your point of five to ten years, you know, most powerful moment. It, it is so impeccably framed that is, that slow-mo and you're right i think it is absolutely the fitting in jeremy to this character and not only to the character because of the backstory we get with his father and his previous suicide attempt which makes it kind of blatantly the the correct way to, to go or the natural way to go but in general i just think him having agency in his own demise is more meaningful than him making a choice that ultimately eventually may or may not kill him. Um, this goes a lot more into the mental health aspect of Jackson that goes far beyond just the alcoholism. I mean, he's dealing with so much. This character is really struggling. It's not, it's alcoholism, it's mental health and depression. It's hearing loss as a, as a musician, like he's got physical ailments as well. So um, he is a complex, complex character, and I think that it made perfect sense. And while I hate suicide, obviously, and I hate seeing it depicted often in films because it it's very hard to handle it appropriately in a way that I think is worth showing, what seals it for me is the conversation, or I'm not conversation, but the the narration or the dialogue that Bobby speaks afterwards. I think he's talking to Allie and he's telling her that you need to be proud of Jack's legacy and that or he's proud that that Jack uh, Jack's legacy has lived on and he specifically says the words it's Jack's fault he says don't blame yourself Jack made the decision and I think that that is what made this scene kind of full circle work for me is because of that moment um, that he took the blame away from others and put it on the person that actually made the decision themselves um, to go that far. So that, that was just a, a part of it that I thought was particularly powerful to me. Well, uh, any last thoughts at all on, on the film? I mean, uh, Cooper's performance, anybody? Gaga's performance? Oscar, Oscar thoughts. Let's do Oscar thoughts. Jeremy, what do you think? What's getting nominated? What's it winning? Um, I think Gaga will definitely be nominated, right? Uh, She's like seems to be the talk of the movie. I think so. Um, I think she was she was great. Um, I've heard people throw around that it's the best performance by a musician in a movie ever. Uh, I don't know if I have enough expertise to agree with that, but as far as what I've seen, I don't disagree. Um, I would guess it's probably nominated for a best picture, and uh, I would hope that Cooper is nominated for a best uh, 
best actor too. I'm hoping just for the big five, I guess, because I think I think everything across the board was pretty great for a first time director. I thought he did a great job. The use of close ups, uh, just especially like that shallow scene where you know you're just seeing in uh, Lady Gaga's face that that decision point and her eyes, and I just thought it was the whole, it was incredible. Now, will it win? I don't know that I've seen enough other movies that'll be nominated yet to say that, but I wouldn't be surprised uh, for sure if I if Lady Gaga had got an Oscar out of this. Yeah, I think Bradley Cooper, at the very least, should take home Best Actor because of the amount of time that he put in into learning how to both sing and play the guitar. I think that's pretty amazing. And I've said this before, his ability to alter his voice in a way that is believable, not having the idea of hearing him as rocket raccoon is a great example. I was going to read like, yeah, I cannot even, I, I listen to that over and over again and I still can't hear Bradley Cooper behind that. If I were to listen to his voice without seeing him on screen, I wouldn't think that that's Bradley Cooper playing Jackson because of his ability to just own those roles and I think it speaks a lot, like we talk about with being able to emote with your face, there's value in being able to alter your voice in order to sound rugged, sound seasoned as a musician. And then to hear him sing, again, I'm not hearing Bradley Cooper sing, I'm hearing Jackson. Jackson is Jackson Maine is the one who's singing, not Bradley Cooper. So at the very least, I would love to see him get the uh, best best actor nod. But like you, Jeremy, I haven't seen enough of the other potential Oscar nominees to to make a more objective uh, opinion. What about Sam Elliott? Anybody? I've heard Sam Elliott nomina- uh, nominations mentioned for Best Supporting Actor. I kind of thought he wasn't in the movie very much, and I thought, you know, it's interesting because he has a couple really great scenes, but they're, I mean, they are so, so short. And 90% of his dialogue is literally the F word. So I was kind of like mixed on whether or not I thought that performance was was worthy of a, an award, but he's, he's just always great. He's perfect in it. So there is that, but I agree with you guys. Um, you know, Cooper won't hurt my feelings if he's nominated Gaga. I think very likely Jeremy, I am in that camp. I think she very well could be the best music musicians performance. I would go so far as to say, I believe if I'm predicting that this is going to launch her into superstardom, like, I mean, she's already a superstar, but like, I think we haven't had in a long, long time a musician slash actress that really owned Hollywood. And I think this could be it. I think this could take her. This She has no limit. She she literally is the talented, most talented, one of the most talented people I've ever seen and, and can do anything. And I think this is the start of something incredibly special, the next stage in, in her career. So um, I think she's probably going to win it just based on, and the amazing amount of public support as well. Um, And I love the direction. I think the direction was incredible. And just, again, we've talked about it before, but this year has been so amazing for first-time directors. I I don't know what's in the water, but shoot. There's still a few months, folks, listening. This is the time. Go make your movie because it's extra good this year. Um, There's a couple meta things I just wanted to mention real quick before we wrap up. thought that these were cool. Jeremy, you probably picked these out too because you've watched the other editions of this. But Patrick, there's a really bad makeup scene in the 76 version in the bathtub where 
she's putting makeup on him and it's it's awful i mean it is like a 10 minute long melodramatic with awful 70s barbara streisand music playing in the background it's the worst part of the worst movie i've ever seen it is it's so hard to get through and in this version they do it they put him in the bathtub with Allie, and he's like it's never been done before and she goes it actually has been done before and i just thought that was so cool, like to kind of acknowledge that and kind of give that little bit of a slam in a way, because it's not a direct slam, but it, if you've seen the movie, you know that really they're probably slamming it. That and then I just thought it was really cool how they tied in this line um, in Jackson's monologue toward the end of the film where he says, there's only 12 notes and then the octave repeats. And all an artist can do is offer the world how he sees those 12 notes. You ever want some really cool, like, awesomely worded arguments for why it's okay to do remakes and reboots and retell stories? Here it is right here. I just thought it was such a neat way of saying, hey, we know we're telling this story for the fifth time, but there's a purpose and there's a reason. And uh, and here's a great, cool musical reference to make it make sense. And I, th- yeah, it made me think of, uh, I know, uh, feeling film group member, uh, James Harleman in his book, you know, he always says that there's no such thing as a new story. There's just fresh tellings of old stories. And I, yeah, I love that little explanation about the notes. I've told other people about that this weekend, just because, um, you know, that's what, as someone who watches, you know, hundreds of movies a year, that's what you're looking for is, uh, I know I'm not going to see something new for the most part, uh, like the get outs of the world or stuff like that are few and far between, but I want to see fresh versions and, uh, Man, he nailed it in this one. Absolutely. Well, let's roll into our connecting points, gentlemen. And Jeremy, as usual, we're going to let you kick us off with yours first. So where did you land? Well, obviously, the easy choice is when Jack goads Allie onto the stage to play Shallow for the first time. Um, So I'm going to not try to be cute and just go ahead and go with that whole scene because I think it was... Uh, just wonderful. Like I mentioned the close-ups before, uh, just being, being able to see, um, Allie making that decision to step out onto the stage and, uh, specifically the very moment where she, she's already been on the stage. She sung the first verse, she sung the chorus and whatnot. And there's a part where she decides like to just stop singing the song and she grabs the mic and just like, owns the whole moment and she owns the whole song she starts doing her lady gaga uh, you know i'm not gonna sing for y'all but um that sort of uh stuff she does and her voice just gets more confident and it just uh man i was in ugly tears at that moment and just it was everything i'd hoped for that just the build up to that point um goosebumps tears uh the person the late the you know the Unfortunate thing about going to movies uh, by yourself a lot is that you end up sitting in those like reclinable love seats with people you don't know a lot. And so this uh, person sitting next to me, she was just in shambles. She, um, both of us, I didn't feel embarrassed crying because of the way she was sobbing. It was just such a beautiful moment. And uh, I honestly, once I, once it comes out and I will buy it, I will watch that scene over and over and over again till the end of time. Yeah, no doubt, man. I, I got chills, legit chills. I was in tears. There's a powerfulness to that moment and to that 
the way that it is shot, this is what I was saying in my opening statement, the way that that cinematography is done is incredible. The energy you feel. I mean, I felt like I was at this concert. I really did. And there's a point in that scene that just slays me more than anything else. And it's when Jack is looking at Allie and not the crowd. He's singing, but he's looking at her. And there's a similar moment to that in the 76 version, but it's so much better in this one. And, and like you realize, Patrick, like what you were saying, like she's the driving force for everything. He doesn't care about the hundreds of thousands of people that are cheering his name and screaming about him right there in front of him. He cares about her right there next to him on stage. So yeah, that, that scene is amazing, man. So I'm glad that uh, one of us decided to choose it. Patrick, what about you? What did you go with? Well, I'm not going to give Sam Elliott a best supporting actor nod just because of what you said, Aaron, that he doesn't have many lines. But the thing about Sam Elliott is when he delivers lines, he delivers them like Federal Express, like right to your door. It's just really great. And there's two big moments with him and Bradley Cooper. The first one being the conflict that we talked about earlier where he accuses Jackson of stealing his voice and Jackson says, it's because you didn't have anything to say. Ooh, burn. Yeah. Wow. And there's this tension because he leaves, you know, he ends up quitting and there is some reconciliation here and there. Jackson says something about, we didn't make it because we look too much like a father son band, as opposed to two brothers who probably could have made it better like that. But there is a moment and it's a wow moment for me. And it's the moment that Bobby brings him back from rehab. He's pulling into the driveway and they're sitting there and it's just awkward and quiet. And Jackson gets out of the car. And as he's leaving, he says, I wish I could think of the line specifically. He basically says, it wasn't our father that I was envious of. It was you. And he leaves. Sam Elliott's face, the way he is breaking and how he is just just fervently trying to put the car in reverse and leave because of how broken he is. I felt like that was a huge tension release for Bobby. It was like this moment where he goes, oh my gosh, I was validated and I don't even know what to do with that. I don't know how to handle this. And I, I kind of like the fact that we don't see him again until that moment with Allie where he says, remember Jackson's legacy. And I don't think he could say that without that one moment, without being given permission to know that he was the reason that Jackson pursued the career that he did and the reason that Jackson was successful, or at least one of the big reasons. And I think that when you have a moment like that, it says so much. That says a lot about your acting chop. So I still won't give him the best supporting actor, but if they were given a best supporting actor's moment, I would definitely put him up there for that. Man, I love it. I I think it was so cool. Like the two of them have great chemistry. Every pairing in this film has a has good chemistry. Um, but it was a neat choice to use an actor that was so much older and to have that be part of the story and actually have it work out to make sense. And not just be a band manager that was in this relationship. I think it added a lot to this version. And Sam Elliott is, yeah, he's incredible, man. And that, that moment is, is crushing. Well, for me, uh, it was very, very close to being the shallow. And 
moment and it was hard not to go with that. But there was something that happened before it that I don't think the shallow would have worked well enough for me if it wasn't for this. And that was their first date sitting outside the drugstore. And it's kind of a, a sequence here that I'm talking about. They've kind of gone on a bike ride to visit the drugstore to get medicine for Allie's hand because she has a super punch and knocked out this annoying fan, which is just so sweet and a great way to start your relationship off. Um, it, everything is building so perfectly on this curb. It feels natural, like a first date. It feels like he's finally talking about his family and himself. And so she's starting to really get to know him. And I think that Bradley Cooper makes a conscious decision here to do away with any score. And all we hear is the nighttime wind blowing. And it was it's really just perfect. And there's a line that comes up and they say, nuts, Navajo, and nowhere to go. And I thought that was awesome. It's just a beautiful summation of being in the moment with someone and getting to know them. And then this is where she starts singing acapella. <laughs> and wow. Like, Jackson's response is, he kind of chuckles. He's like, uh, holy shit. And that's all he says. Because he's like blown away by what he hears from her in that moment. And it is so moving. Um, and, and then the lyrics, you know, the tell me something, boy, aren't you try tired trying to fill that void or do you need more? Ain't it hard keeping it so hardcore? Like she's writing on the spot. She's singing to him. I mean, how could he not fall for this woman? This is like the perfect person for him. Um, I just think it's really, really an amazing moment. And she says, he, he says, is that me? And she says, that's you. And he, he says, did you just write that right now? And she just says, yeah. And I think this is the moment that sold me on their relationship going forward. And it, it allows me to buy the speed and the way that their relationship progresses. Everything after that. Because this is where those two people realized a mutual interest that went beyond just physical attraction. And they really, truly connected. Um, and it, frankly, it made me want this moment for myself, you know, so badly. And uh, I couldn't, couldn't help but connect with that. So that was mine. I think my favorite part of that whole sequence, and there were so many of them, but the one that stood out was when he goes, can I tell you a secret? You're a singer-songwriter. I mean, it's just, or yes. you're, you're a natural songwriter. It's so good, man. It is. And it's just innocent and intimate. And uh, it. I just want to wrap my arms around both of them and be like, yes, yes, I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Me too, man. I agree. My favorite part of that scene is where, like, they get through that part and then she's, like, just looks at her hand and has those peas tied to them. And it's like, that's where the reality hit her. Like, what the heck is happening in my life right now? I'm here with a famous rock star who has just <laughs> bandaged a bag of peas to my hurting hand because I punched a cop. I just loved that. That, that she just starts cracking up and I that's where I was like oh okay there that was just a great connection moment yeah the whole thing about it even in the even in the drugstore when they get to the cashier and the cashier is like can I get a picture <laughs> and she's like and the look that she gives yeah, her well he didn't even the cashier didn't even didn't even ask for a picture and she just goes just holds the camera up and 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 
And she says, I'm oh, sorry. Right. He goes, it's it okay. It's okay. Yeah. But you see, you learn so much about mm-hmm. Jackson in those little moments, right? Like, there's such a difference. He under he's like he innately knows who is genuine and, and what kind of a fan he wants to allow to have that experience. I, I don't know. It's, the whole thing is so sweet. So all right. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. I was really glad that we got to have you on for this one. Um, it's awesome having you as part of the team. And um, I know folks that uh, maybe know, maybe just listen to the podcast, haven't heard you many times yet, but uh, please do like Jeremy is writing on the website. He's doing reviews. Um, he's done columns for us in the past. He's very, very active in the Facebook group, um, which we would love to have you come join, by the way, listeners. So If you're not a part of that, please check out the links in the show notes or on the website and come join the Facebook group. Um, But Jeremy, it's been great having you, man. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you on social media? Um, You can find me uh, in the Feel and Film Facebook group most uh, all day, every day. Um, And also on Twitter, I'm at Jay and Lincoln, J-A-Y-I-N-L-I-N-C-O-L-N. I talk about movies some on there, and you're welcome to follow me, but a lot of it is... uh, like either Kansas City Royals or Nebraska Cornhuskers talk. So you'll have to put up with a lot of that to get to my movie stuff. And then on um, on Letterboxd, I'm also Jay and Lincoln. So follow me at those places and we can chat. Awesome. What about you, Patrick? Uh, you can find me at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H on Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to at me if you want to continue this conversation or other conversation about movies or TV or just anything that you find relevant. I'm a good talker, I think, maybe. I'm on a podcast, so maybe that says a lot about me. Um, Want to give you guys a heads up that next week we're getting a chance to cover Damien Chazelle's First Man starring Ryan Gosling. It's gotten a lot of interesting reviews, uh, but the ones that I've read, at least in their small tidbits, have been really positive. Uh, my dad, who is a huge space junkie, has already asked when we're going to go see it, and he's saying, get me a ticket. I want to go with you guys. So, that says a lot, and I'm excited to watch this movie with him and my wife. This will be even better. That's awesome, man. Well, you know that I can't wait because I'm a big Damien Chazelle fan, and I'm super excited to see how he incorporates the jazz into this movie because it has to happen somehow, doesn't it? It surely does. Well, listeners, if you'd like to continue to conversation with me online, you can find me on Twitter at Feelin' Film or in aforementioned Facebook group where I also am incredibly active. If you have enjoyed this content, this conversation, we would love for you to visit our page on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen to the podcast and give us a five-star rating and write a little review. Uh, It does help us get noticed and helps people when they're making a decision on what podcast to try out. If they see one with a bunch of positive reviews, they're more likely to give it a shot and we would love to have more of you out there. So thank you for listening. We appreciate it. We hope you've had a good time we know we have patrick i love it can't wait for the next one but until next time listeners stay positive and keep feeling film